Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Time travel, alien tyrants, world domination, epic battles, post-apocalyptic cities, sudden drought, unnatural trees reaching above the clouds. Despite what you're thinking, this week's episode is not about Doctor Who or an old episode of Stargate SG-1. It's about Ezekiel 31. Who knew the Bible could be so much fun? You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 39 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Ezekiel. And you made an interesting observation, and it's not the first time I've heard this discussed with respect to this text, but you talked about the fact that Ezekiel seems to play with time, with chronology. I know that a lot of scholars struggle with this and try to figure out how to piece things together to justify an historical documentary approach to this text, but there's something else going on here, and it was fascinating when you were talking about it. So would you elaborate a bit for our listeners? The problem that first came to me was one that we often have in these prophetic books. What is the function of the oracles against the nations? In this chapter, we have a conversation, a private conversation seemingly, between the Lord and Pharaoh. Interestingly, it's in Hebrew, and it's in Ezekiel's book. So why should Israelites hear the conversation between the Lord and Pharaoh about how proud Pharaoh was and why he's being cut down, which is the meaning of chapter 31? And the problem is that he's arrogant. Well, everybody knows that Pharaoh is arrogant. He was arrogant in the Exodus. He was always arrogant. And presidents and leaders of countries tend to be arrogant. So why have a discussion presented to Israelites about how the king of Egypt is arrogant? That just kind of seems boring. So what's the problem? I think what it is is that Israel needs to be taught a lesson about arrogance. And this is what prompted me to think about how this fits in the broader course of the book of Ezekiel, because why do they need to be taught this lesson about arrogance? Well, looking at the chapter itself, it starts off in the 11th year. If you look at chapter 1, when Ezekiel is by the river Kabar, and the Lord appears in his chariot to the people, to Ezekiel in captivity, this is year 30. I think this is significant. So, we're reading this from the point of view of Ezekiel and the people being in captivity. And we get a blast from the past, a flashback to what they were being warned about 20 years before, or so 18 and a half years before. It's kind of like a movie 
that deals with periods of time in the past, in the future. And just as you cut to a scene that's in a different time, they show the date and the time. I think it's very easy for a modern audience to understand that the film producer is taking liberty to transport you to a different time and a different setting. When you come to scripture, when they see the text start to talk about the 11th year, the third month, on the first month, I think we tend to gloss over that because it's a kind of timekeeping that we don't use. We don't mark dates the way they're marking dates in Ezekiel. But then I think we miss this dynamic. Yeah, I think you're right. So then when I started poking around the book of Ezekiel to see where stuff lines up chronologically, not only is this taking place in year 11, the description of the heavenly Jerusalem in chapter 40, that takes place in the 25th year. Oftentimes people read Ezekiel and they get to chapter 25 and like, oh good, we have this hope. In the future, things are going to get better, and we can be happy maybe in the future once the Lord decides to allow this heavenly Jerusalem to appear. The Lord can not only provide us with an escape from captivity, but can provide us an entirely new order of events where the entire land is holy, where people can live in peace. But significantly, he presented this in year 25, and in year 30 is when they ended up in captivity. So they went into captivity knowing there is potentially a problem with arrogance, just like what happened with Pharaoh in year 11. And in year 25, they knew about this hope of what the Lord could provide for them. And then once you get to the end of the book, chapter 30 is not just, oh, the people ended up in captivity, which is what you begin with. They're in captivity, we don't know why. Once you read the rest of the book, you realize, oh, the reason why they were in captivity in the beginning is because they rejected, for example, the lesson about arrogance in chapter 31, about how the Lord provides, the Lord makes you who you are, not you yourself. And the lesson in year 25, in chapter 40, when the Lord provides a new world order in which his land is the one that's lifted up in which he has supreme power you've rejected that this is why you find yourself in the situation you're in and this is i think what's important is that yes year 25 in chapter 40 allows us the reader to look to the future but it's a future that was rejected and since you know what the results are of rejecting that image of the future, you can just as easily end up in that situation. So the Gospel of Mark actually does something very similar to what you're describing. Because when you talk about Ezekiel at the end lifting up this heavenly city, which becomes very important in Paul's letters later on, in my mind, I'm immediately drawn to the first chapter and the second chapter of Ezekiel, where already God is doing what he does at the outset of the Psalter. He is struggling to demonstrate to the Israelite that he is above all of the other nations and all of the other gods. So you are already presented with the summation, which is the heavenly city and the God of gods. You're presented with this concept already at the beginning of the book, and it plays out in all of the different metaphors, where you're pushing the dominion of God well beyond the purview of some earthly city in Palestine. In Mark, it's a similar device because you hear again and again in the Gospel of Mark that the Son of Man will be crucified, he'll suffer many things, he'll be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. You hear this again and again in Mark. You hear it at the beginning of the book. Then you come to the end of the book, and you're at the empty tomb. And what does the man dressed in white say? The same thing you heard at the beginning, although now it's 
the same statement clothed in this apocalyptic imagery or this eschatological imagery of the risen Messiah. But the teaching is the teaching is the teaching in chapter 1, in chapter 5, in chapter 3, wherever you are in the text, right? So this seems to be like a driving force, what you're saying in Ezekiel. It's pushing us towards this heavenly city that is beyond the reach of human dominion. And then suddenly you think about the tall tree in chapter 31. It's so funny how trees seem to be related to judgment in scripture. Craig Jarrell at St. Elizabeth gave a lecture on chapter 31 of Ezekiel. And one of the things that came out in his discussion was how the trees are reaching into the heavens, right? And there's this haughtiness, but then the trees also become a sign of God's judgment in Ezekiel and elsewhere in scripture. But the tree reaching suddenly in its haughtiness could be an allusion, at least conceptually, to man and his arrogance at Babel reaching to the heavens to try to outdo God. But now Ezekiel's saying, however proud or tall your tree is, it cannot reach this land that is above all lands, the city that is beyond all cities. And by the power and the judgment of the God of this city, your haughty cedar in chapter 31 is brought low. It's beautiful, the image of the tree in that chapter, because it's the water that allows the tree to flourish. And who provides the water? It's the Lord. But then also, the Lord can cut down the tree. And once the tree is cut down, how much higher are you than the other trees? You're exactly the same. You're exactly the same height as any other tree that's been cut down. Once you've been cut down, there's nothing left of you. And I think what happens, the way that oftentimes this book is read, we're reading these different time frames as, oh, this happened, this will happen, this is about the past, this is about the future. But because of the way the book is structured in that the river Kabar and Ezekiel speaking from the river happens at the end, it's all imminent in a way. So that we don't just understand the heavenly Jerusalem as something that's coming. It's an acceptance or rejection of that that puts us in the position that we're in. And the time travel mechanism or the flashback mechanism, however you want to describe it, allows the reader to experience these outcomes forwards or backwards in a very immediate and real way. Mm -hmm. In Islam, they talk about the importance of believing in al-yawm al-akhir, the mm -hmm. last day, which is the final judgment. Because oftentimes when I've heard Muslims talk about this, they say, well, how can you be a moral person if you don't believe that there's some kind of accounting at the end? Now, whether there is an accounting at the end or not, it's whether you believe in that accounting and how your actions are ordered today. How can I trust you today if you don't believe that this is going to happen? What if it never happens? That's not the question. The question is, do you believe it? If you do believe it, it will form your actions in a particular way. Ezekiel shows in chapter 1 what happens when that view of the world is rejected. When people act in such a way that they don't believe that arrogance can strike them just as much as it can strike Pharaoh. When they don't believe that the Lord can just reform the entire land however he wants from scratch in chapter 40. Once you start believing that you are the one who forms things, you reject both of those images. You reject both of those views of the world, or that singular view of the world expressed in these two ways. And now you're for yourself. Once you're for yourself and you're creating yourself, now you're Pharaoh. And now this is why you get the advantage of listening to this voice. But then we get the advantage because we get to read the book and we say, aha, we know how this ends up because we read chapter one. 
just like someone questioning nuclear proliferation has the opportunity in the classic sci-fi movie, The Planet of the Apes, to experience the horror of Charlton Heston's character as he discovers that he's on planet Earth and the civilization he knew was wiped out. We talked about this last week. It's the power of literature to help you come face to face with the consequences of your actions now, even if those consequences aren't immediately apparent to you in your everyday life. One thing I find very interesting about Ezekiel 31 specifically with respect to the trees, the haughty tree, when I think back to Ezekiel 17 earlier in the book, where you have the same concept of a haughty tree, and then God takes a small branch from that tree and plants it on Zion, and it grows and all the birds of the air come to rest on its nests. This is an image that keeps coming back. And it's one that Jesus refers to in his own discussion of the metaphors of the kingdom in the New Testament, how all the birds of the air come to rest on the branches of this tree. You have the same thing in 31, but again, what's interesting is that it's not a positive image because in the beginning you have this haughty tree that all of the birds rest on and all the animals come to seek refuge under, but then after the tree is brought low by God's judgment, the birds come to rest on its branches as they're flat horizontal on the ground. It undermines the justification the haughty would have for their haughtiness. Very often when someone is in a position of power, they justify their abuses of power by saying, I'm doing it for a good cause. Well, God is coming along and saying, well, that good cause of giving the birds a place to rest, guess what? They can rest on your broken body. It's just fine. That's an important point because look what I'm able to do for everybody. This is a great justification for obscene wealth in this country. Well, now that I have all this money, now I can help everybody out. Therefore, I have to keep my money. I have to make sure that people don't take my money because otherwise, how am I supposed to help everybody well, out? Well, but as Craig pointed out yesterday in his lecture, which I was very excited to hear him talk, you know, he's a parishioner at St. Elizabeth who's come through this program and is now able to stand up and give a lecture on this text. One of the things he pointed out in his lecture was that the waters that the tree was planted in, I mean, the tree had no say in where it was planted and no control over those waters. It was God who was exercising his control over those waters. And so therefore the tree grew up because it was allowed to grow up. In the lingua franca of the New Testament, you would say that that's grace. I think in this context, it's enough to say that God, who is the God of gods and the King of kings and the judge of judges, in his wisdom, allowed this tree to grow up so that he could bring it down in order to make his point in chapter 31. But again, it's this idea that you have no basis for your haughtiness. You have no cause to boast because it may have been good that the trees could rest according to God's providence, but that doesn't mean that you are good or you yourself had a part beyond how God used you in the outcome of your haughtiness. It's easy for us to fall in that trap because we think, oh, well, obviously, you know, that's the case. Obviously, we wouldn't say that it's all us. Obviously, we would say that it's God. But the thing is, is that it's not obvious. And here's how I know that it's not obvious. In ancient Egyptian religion, the king, Pharaoh, had a direct connection with the gods. And if the Nile continued to flood, then they would have crops and they would have abundance, so much so that they could sell it to other countries and become rich. They could become the most powerful. So it was 
the king's job to continue to pray and make petitions to the gods so that the water would continue to flood and so they would continue to have prosperity. So it was thanks to the king and the king's efforts that the country continued to be strong and continued to be wealthy and continued to prosper. Now, how often in the United States do we hear, if this country no longer is Christian, if this country stops believing, is removed from its Christian roots, then we will no longer have the prosperity or we risk losing the prosperity that we've had as a nation. Therefore, it's imperative on Americans to be strong Christians or else we might become less and less prosperous. This is anti-Ezekiel. It's anti-Ezekiel because what that is is that then we are a collective pharaoh. It's thanks to us, thanks to our beliefs, thanks to our prayers, thanks to our blessing the rest of the nation that we have the prosperity we have. The Lord is saying, no, it's just because you happen to start out as a seed that happened to be planted by a river that I created. And he says, I covered the deep for him. I restrained the floods thereof, and the great waters were stayed. I caused Lebanon to mourn for him. He is the one who controlled the waters. He is the one that made the waters so that they could prosper. It really comes down to that statement. Why does the United States prosper? If we're going to follow this argument, then we say it's simply because of grace. If we say anything else, then we fall into the trap of Pharaoh. And we know what happens when Israel falls into the trap of Pharaoh. Chapter 1. You cannot fall into this trap when you get into the ideological debate between the socialists and the capitalists or the liberals and the conservatives. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, you can never fall into the trap of saying, I earned this or I did it, I achieved this. No matter how hard you work on your small business, no matter how hard you work in your job, whatever you're doing, the clothes on your back even if you earned the money to purchase them, were worked on by how many hundreds of people in the third world? Whether it's the cloth that was used or the dyes or the sewing that took place, even the, already the clothes on your back, even if you write a check to pay for them, are still by grace because of all the people who had to work and to sacrifice in order for you to buy a shirt for under $15 at the local department store. That you have the money to pay. By grace, your employer paid you. When I lived in the former Soviet Union, sometimes the employer just didn't pay. The courts were not an option. Exactly. So you counted on the grace of your employer to give you the money so that you could go and buy what you needed to buy. People in America don't understand these things and they become arrogant because they think everything is functioning as it is supposed to function. No, it's functioning as grace allows it to function. Now, what's interesting when you get to verse 10, where it talks about the judgment, people tend to think about the judgment in very literal terms, but judgment is metaphoric. What you are saying is that it would behoove us as Americans to consider that everything we have was given by God as grace. You have to accept that everything you have did not come from you. You have to accept this basic logical point. If you don't accept it, that means you are self-deluded, which is unto judgment. It's to your folly to be self-deluded. If you do accept it and ignore it, it is still unto judgment and to your folly because there are implications for ignoring certain basic facts about life and about the reality of your situation. 
So in verse 10, when we hear, therefore thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in its loftiness, therefore I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations and he will thoroughly deal with it. So if you're a fundamentalist, you're going to sit back and you're going to wait to see which nation God is going to hand us over to in order for us to be judged. In reality, it's a cause and effect dynamic. If you continue to be haughty and are blinded by your haughtiness in the treatment of others, individually or collectively as communities or as a nation, there will be consequences. There will be violence, there will be destruction. That's why the political imagery of the prophetic tradition is so relevant and helpful. We know from the way things work that there's always another nation that could rise up, and there's always a fear of this happening. But it's not that God is causing other nations to rise up. God is using the hopeful potential of our fear of the power of death. The hope is that he can turn that fear into the fear of his instruction so that our anxiety about other nations turns into anxiety about the consequences of not listening to God. Right. I mean, And that, humbling ourselves. And that's what chapter 1 is doing. Once you get to the end of Ezekiel, chapter 1 is not just a statement. It's also a question. Do you want to end up at Kabar? And if you don't want to, then are you willing to heed the warnings of this book? I know I don't want to be left in Kabar. I'm not sure about you. I don't want to be in Kabar either. And I'm pretty sure that Craig doesn't want to be in Kabar. So let's all three of us get together and read scripture and see how things fare. Anyways, until next week, thank right, you very thank much. You very much. You take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.